You're looking at market rising perhaps towards 3,250, maybe up about 5% uh, from now through the, uh, the primaries, basically end of, uh, end of February, early March. You get a, a pretty good understanding of who the candidate will be on the Democratic side. Okay, let me pause it there for a minute. This guy's name is David Costin. He is the U.S. Chief Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs. So he's a pretty high up guy at Goldman Sachs. And what he's doing is giving predictions. He's saying what he thinks, in his opinion, based off of the data that he has and the research that he's done, what he thinks will happen in 2020. So let's go ahead and listen to some of his predictions here. And that's basically where the market's likely to be for most of the year uh, through the election. And then at, at that point, this uncertainty, this great uh, uncertainty about policy, et cetera, will be resolved one way or the other. Uh, most likely, you'll have a divided government in some fashion, Senate, House, uh, the White House. And as a result of that, uh, you'll have another P expansion towards the end of the year. That'll be my lay of the land roadmap for, uh, for I know you always like to talk, talk about the roadmap for the next hour on CNBC. So this will be the roadmap for the next year. So that's his prediction, a summary of it. He's forecasting that stocks will rise about 5% in the U.S., so pared back a lot from 2019, at least what it's rounding up to be right now, late in December. But he thinks that stocks will rise about 5%, that we'll eventually find out who's going to be president, and that we'll most likely have a divided government. So not too much policy will actually be changed in the U.S. Now, obviously, David Costin here from Goldman Sachs, He's not the only one that likes giving out predictions. Let's be honest with ourselves. Predicting what's going to happen in the upcoming year with the stock market, with the elections, everything that we can predict in the future, that's something that most people enjoy giving their thoughts on. And it's not just banks that enjoy this. There are a lot of big institutional, big name investors like Ray Dalio here over Bridgewater Associates that he manages hundreds of billions of dollars. And his whole thing, the thing that he does is forecasting. That's another word for predicting the future. There's other notable people like Jeffrey Gunlock here, the Double Line Capital CEO. He manages over $100 billion. He's coined the quote-unquote bond king, and he does lots of macroeconomic predictions, predictions of what's going to happen in the future. But like most things in investing, there's people that do things a different way. Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett here do not give predictions. They do not give forecasts. And they do not base their investment decisions on economic predictions or modeling or forecasting. So what I wanted to do in this video was take a look at some of the best arguments for forecasting, some of the best arguments against it. I think the question of is giving predictions in 2020 what's going to happen, is that a fun thing to do? I think that's an easy answer. I think the answer is yes. Everybody likes giving predictions. It's fun to do. I like giving predictions of what I think will happen in the future. But a more difficult question to answer is, are those predictions actually beneficial to your investing? And should you base your investment decisions around the predictions that other people make? That is a far more difficult question to answer. I want to look at it in this video. A couple other things that I needed to share my thoughts on. One of them, the big news everybody knows about, President Trump has been impeached. The House voted to impeach him. I'm going to talk and share a few thoughts about this, what I think it means or doesn't mean. In other big news that happened this week, Boeing officially announced that they're going to suspend the 737 MAX, their most popular airliner, the one that had the two crashes. They're suspending that come January of next year, so just in like a month. They're going to be suspending production of this. I'll also be talking about this and what I think it means. And then, of course, we have my portfolio update, how it's been doing, as well as answering some of your questions and comments. 
Now, before going into the news or my portfolio update, I want to jump back to this whole idea of making predictions about the market, the upcoming 2020 year, and then basing your investment decisions around those predictions. Here we're looking, this is from the Wall Street Journal. We're looking at the economic forecasting survey. So the Wall Street Journal has been doing this for years. They say that they survey a group of more than 60 economists on more than 10 major economic indicators on a monthly basis. And as you can see right here, this graph shows the gray is the actual the red line is the economist predictions. And you can see where it was in the past. This is their predictions every single quarter of the past four years. So Q4 of 2019, then Q1 of 2020, and so on. You can see the aggregate of these economists' predictions. In the future, on aggregate, they think that the economy will rise at a pace of about 1.9 throughout 2020. 1.9% GDP throughout 2020. So this isn't the stock market, this is the economy. They're making predictions on what's going to happen with the economy. Now, it should hold true that if the economy raises at about 1.9% throughout the year 2020, that the stock market shouldn't have any real reason to collapse or go into a big bear market. The stock market doesn't always track the economy perfectly, right? We had the analogy of the guy walking across the park and the dog on the leash going back and forth the dog being the stock market and the guy walking across the park being the economy. That's similar to how this should happen. If the economy keeps going positive, it doesn't enter a recession throughout 2020, the stock market should continue to keep going positive as well. Now, like I said, in terms of predictions and forecasts, there's really two types of investors. There's those that who either listen to others' predictions or they make their own predictions and they base their investment decisions around that. And there's those who do not make predictions and some of them that actually warn against making predictions, warn against basing their investment decisions around that. What I want to do first is jump into the category of those who do make forecasts of the future. Let's go ahead and start off with Ray Dalio. Here's a prediction that he made in September of 2019. You are seen as somebody who has said there might be a chance of a recession at some point. Do you see any chance of a recession in 2019 or 2020? I think that it's probably a 25% chance in each of those years, probably, of a recession. So Ray Dalio here gives the U.S. a 25% chance of heading into a recession in 2020. And a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. Pretty much our economy declines for two consecutive quarters. We have hit a recession. That's what it takes. Now, he gives a one in four chance of that. And he explains that he thinks that the Fed doesn't have that much monetary policy to deal with the slowing economy. And he thinks the economy will slow in 2019 and be 1% growth, maybe 1.5% growth is his estimate of it. And there's variables that could turn that negative. That's why he's saying most likely we won't, 75% chance we won't hit a recession, but there's a chance because of the slowing growth that we will enter into a recession. Another one we have here that likes to give predictions is Jeffrey Gunlock. He is on the side of investor that he gives economic forecasts. He talks about the Fed policy and banking policy and things that he thinks that's going on in the world that will affect the stock market. He looks at historical trends and things that have happened with other countries and, and tries to factor that into decisions. And earlier this year, in mid-2019, like summer of 2019, he gave a really bearish, grim look at the U.S. economy. He said that we have over a 60% chance of entering a recession in the next 12 months. And he did like an hour-long interview detailing out a very convincing bear case for the U.S. economy. I actually remember receiving a lot of emails and, and people asking about that, my response to him. 
but I knew I would do a video on this eventually. This is the video I'm doing about it. But he has since changed his look at what is going on. Some factors that he's considered have changed since the summer, and this is the updated version of his predictions. You yourself have taken down your recession expectations. Absolutely. To like 35. That's, that's right. almost half of what you predicted when we, in the summer. When we last spoke. Well, I don't know if it was when we last spoke. But well, in, close, the, in the summer, it was, it was really in August. Well, the point is you're not expecting a recession uh, anytime soon now. I think that it's unlikely to be a recession at this point. The odds are against a recession occurring before the end of 2020. And what's happened is consumer confidence has really held up. And the year-over-year leading indicators from the conference board were at 7% year-over-year 15 months ago, which is really strong. And you have never had a recession in the last several decades without leading indicators first going negative. So that's really the, the canary in the coal mine. You have sometimes had negative leading indicators without a recession, but you've never had a recession without negative leading indicators. So it's a necessary, not sufficient condition. So his reason for cutting the probability of us entering a recession by the end of 2020, his reason for cutting that in half from like above 60% to below 30% is because he believes that the indicators that have to happen before we enter a recession have not come to flourishing that he has not seen those indicators. And so he's had to pare back his probability of us entering in a recession. Now I look at these people like Ray Dalio and Jeffrey Gunlock. These are obviously intelligent, highly successful people that manage billions of dollars. They're very thoughtful with the money that they handle. And they've given predictions and probabilities of us entering a recession by the end of 2020. Ray Dalio is this 25%. Jeffrey Gunlock's right around there about 30%. And I don't think that there's that much of a difference between 25 and 30%. Either our economy will enter a recession by the end of 2020 or it won't. And either way, these two can say that they were right, right? If I give out a 25% chance that we'll enter a recession by the end of 2020, if we don't enter a recession, I can say, well, I was right. There was a 75% chance that we wouldn't, right? And if we did enter a recession, I can say I was right. It landed on that 25% chance that we did enter a recession. So the question remains, how helpful are these probabilities? Are these predictions? I know personally, I've seen the emails come in. I've seen the comments come in with people saying, hey, I, I read this. I listened to this interview from Ray Dalio or Jeffrey Gunlock. You know, they're warning against the Fed policy. They're warning against the central banks, the economic cycle. People write in and these are very real concerns and people base their investment decisions. Many people keep their money out of the market because of things that people like this say. The statements that they say to be cautious with your money, that we might enter a recession, keeps a lot of people from investing at all. My question is whether or not this is helpful, whether or not having these probabilities and these people saying the likelihood of a recession, whether that's something that we can actually benefit from. Now, there's also notable investors on the other side of this equation. You have great investors like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett that also manage hundreds of billions of dollars, are very successful, but they're on the other end of this where they don't believe that projections and predictions are helpful in any facet. They don't look at predictions in terms of the business that they're buying, and they also don't look at projections of the economy and factor that into their investing. In fact, they are decidedly on the other side where they think that not only is it not helpful, but it's actually harmful. They think that looking at economic forecasts, trying to make your investments based around that, is not the best way to invest. Charlie and I, I think it's fair to say, we've never looked at a projection in, 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 in connection with either a security we've bought or a, um, or a business we've bought. We've had them offered to us in, in, in great quantities. Now, the fact 
that we, I mean, we, we, we voluntarily turned them away when people tried to thrust them upon us. I mean, it, uh, uh, the very fact that they are prepared so meticulously by the people who are selling the businesses or by the executives who are presenting to their boards and all of that sort of thing, you know, I mean, either we're wrong or they're wrong. I mean, it, 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 it's a ritual. That, that managers go through to justify doing what they wanted to do in the first place in, 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 in about nine, nine, nine cases out of ten. Uh, I have never, you know, I have never met an executive who wanted to buy something that said, well, I had to turn it down because the projections didn't work. I mean, it just, it's never happened. And, and there will always be somebody that will come up with the projections that will satisfy uh, the guy who's signing his paycheck or who will sign the deal that provides the commissions. And they uh, will pass those along to whomever else they need, the bankers or the, the board to approve it, and uh, it, is, it is total nonsense. Now, if I had to decide which category of investor I am, am I on the side of Ray Dalio and Jeffrey Gunlock where I make these economic forecasts, or at least I listen to them and I base my investment decisions around what they're saying, or am I in the other category where I completely ignore the economic forecasts that people are making and my investment strategy is completely divorced from all predictions and speculation into the future. I would say I'm on that side, where I ignore economic forecasting, predictions of recession, probabilities, that type of thing. I am far more in agreement with the logic and conclusions that Warren Buffett comes to. What he says, I'm in total agreement of of people find the predictions that match what they're already intending to do. Meaning, if I'm really worried about the future, if I really think that I'm scared putting my money into the market, I am going to naturally seek out information that will validate my concerns. I will seek out the gun locks and the redalios and the people that will tell me that we're going to enter a recession in the upcoming year. And since that validates my concern, I will feel validated and then I won't feel like I'm alone making that decision. Warren Buffett says here that that's what's happening. People are just validating a decision they're already going to make and that he doesn't think that that's helpful. What he focuses on is the businesses he's buying and he totally pushes out of his mind any other external factors. He just focuses on the businesses that he's buying. In that shareholder meeting, Warren Buffett was talking specifically about business projections. In this one, he's talking about economic projections. He's being asked, well, Warren, there's a lot of economic signals that different sectors and things are slowing down. What do you think about this? What do you do based off of that information, off of this economic information coming in? Just looking at those figures, but also looking at some other figures, I, a good many other figures I see on a, on a weekly basis where it, uh, it looks, it looks like things have slowed down, and you'd, you'd always have the weather factor, but uh, uh, that's the way I'd bet looking at what I see today. I don't want to get too... That doesn't change anything we do. I mean, uh, you know, if, if there was a flashing red light, if there was a blurring red light, we would keep investing the same way we do. I mean, it, 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 just look at the railroad we, in, in terms of what the situation was in the fall of 2009. I mean, the... the it looked like <coughs> the end of the world, and, and, and it turned out that that was the low quarter, was the third quarter. Uh, you really want to bet on America. I mean, it, uh, it, uh, uh, you listen to that magnificent rendition of a few minutes ago, and, and uh, God has blessed America. Yeah. Um. Now, it's no secret to people that know Warren Buffett that uh, he loves this country. He has always believed in the U.S. and the U.S. economy, and that he thinks that it possesses the right ingredients, the right people to make it 
continue to be a prosperous nation. That's something that he's long bet on is the U.S. economy. And the interesting about that is he's consistently had this positive view of the United States for his entire life. And that's consistently paid off for him. And he's had that view despite who has ever become president. Warren Buffett, for people that might not know, he is a Democrat. He supported Hillary Clinton. He actually went on the campaign trail and campaigned for Hillary Clinton. Now, obviously, Hillary Clinton did not become president. Donald Trump became President Trump. And Warren Buffett was asked after that, well, what do you think now? Your candidate didn't win. Do you think the U.S. economy will enter into recession? Do you think things will... You know, does this change your opinion? And he said, no, of course not. He thinks that the U.S. has a positive outlook despite who becomes president. So even after his chosen candidate did not become president, he still maintained a very positive outlook for the United States. And by the way, him mentioning that despite the economic conditions, he sticks to his plan and keeps investing. He said that you could have red flashing lights of recession, red flashing lights of bad economic indicators, and he would continue investing. And he mentioned that he purchased a railroad in the third quarter of 2019, which was the bottom quarter of the 2008-2009 recession. This is from The Guardian. November of 2009, Warren Buffett signals his confidence by buying into U.S. railways. This is the third quarter of 2009, the absolute bottom of that recession. Says Buffett in $44 billion deal for Burlington Northern Santa Fe, the world's second richest man, sees bright future for rail. There's a reason that he's the world's second richest man. Because when everybody else was terrified, when the economy was so bad that he rightly so said that it seemed like it was the end of the world, He was purchasing things. He was buying things showing his confidence that the U.S. economy would recover from this recession. So we know that Warren Buffett is not a fan of looking at economic modeling and projections and forecasting of the future. He simply tries to buy things at a good deal. That's the basis of his investing strategy. There's one last investor I want to look at on this topic that has had a lot to say about forecasting. This is Howard Marks. He has talked about forecasting, which is predictions of the future, and he has a very negative view on it. Not only does he think it's not helpful, but he actually thinks that it damages investors' likelihood of making money. And he explains in great detail in different memos and things that he's written, as well as a speech that he gave at Google, his logic behind how economic forecasting is not helpful to investors. We have two classes of forecasters, the ones who don't know and the ones who don't know they don't know. Now, I don't believe in forecasts, uh, macro forecasts. People who forecast interest rates, performance of economies, performance of stock markets. And I don't think that my efforts to be a superior investor and most other people's are aided by macro forecasts. So am I saying that that the forecaster is never right? No, I'm not saying that. The forecasters are often right. Last year, GDP grew 2%. Many forecasters forecast that GDP will grow this year at 2%. That's called extrapolation. And usually in economics, extrapolation works. Usually the future looks like the recent past. So usually the people who forecast a continuation of the current are right. The only problem is they don't make any money. The forecasts that make money are the forecasts of radical change. When people get it right, It's because they predicted extrapolation and nothing changed. Once in a while, something changes radically, and invariably, somebody predicted it. (coughs) But the problem is, if you look at that person's other forecasts over the years, 
you see that that person always made radical forecasts and never uh, was right any other time. So of course, if, you, if you're getting your information from a forecaster, the fact that he was right once doesn't tell you anything. You, you wouldn't, he, the, the views of that forecaster would not be of any value to you unless he was right consistently. And nobody's right consistently in making deviant forecasts. So the bottom line for me is that forecasting is not valuable. So that's Howard Marks. He's laying out a much more technical, nuanced argument of why he doesn't think forecasting is valuable than Warren Buffett does. Warren Buffett just says, look, I don't pay attention to this stuff. It's all just noise. I think America will do okay in the future. And I try to buy companies at a good price. That's Warren Buffett. Howard Marks lays out this technical nuanced view saying that in order for forecasts to be valuable, they have to be what he calls deviant, I would say contrarian. So everybody's forecasting one thing, you're forecasting something different. And not only does it have to be contrarian, but it has to be correct. And the problem is nobody can get those contrarian forecasts to be correct consistently. And if you miss, if you make a contrarian forecast, you align your portfolio around that, and then it's, it's not accurate, you're going to lose money that way. So Howard Marks is saying, because of those two reasons, he doesn't see any value in forecasting. I look at my portfolio. I have $70,000 in it. Now, to me, $70,000 is obviously that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to most people. I'm taking this amount of money into 2020. So we're taking it into 2020. We're going to see what's going to happen with it. The professionals, Ray Dalio and Jeffrey Gunlock, are saying that there's a 75% chance that things will go okay. There's a 25% chance that we'll hit a recession. The U.S. economy will decline. And with that, the value of this portfolio will definitely fall. If the U.S. economy goes into recession, most of these companies that I have are U.S. companies. So they will take a hit if we go into recession. But I'm taking this amount of money invested into 2020, and I'm doing that trying to mimic the attitude that Warren Buffett has, where I don't care if there's blaring lights. You know, I don't really care about these external factors. I don't look at modeling. I'm just looking at continuing to invest. If prices go down, I'll try to invest more aggressively. I know that that is much easier said than done. There's people that are watching that are saying, yeah, easy to say until we hit the recession and then there's job losses and there's bad news and you're going to want to sell out of everything, right? I get that. It's easier said than done, but that's the attitude that I'm trying to have is one where stay invested despite the economics that are going on. Okay, now switching gears, I wanted to do just a a quick portfolio update. So the portfolio is above $70,000. That's kind of a landmark there. I didn't deposit any money since the last video. All of this, you can see the market's gone up the past week. $840, earned $32 in dividends. The past month, let's see, I've earned $178 in dividends, market gains of $707. But a cool thing I'll highlight is if I go to all time here, earned dividends, over $2,000, finally hit that landmark as well. Does it really mean anything? Not really, but it's still kind of cool to get over $2,000 right before the end of the year. I just think it's awesome that the first year and a half of investing, I earned $1,000 in dividends. And then in the last six months, I've doubled that to 2000. So I'm looking at this number 2000 and thinking of what I can get it to by the end of 2020. I think I'll be able to double it again, get it to at least 4,000. I would like to get it to 6,000. That would be a lot tripling this number, but we'll see what happens. Last week, I showed how much dividends I was paid in December up until I think it was the 14th. And you can see right here, the 13th was the last one I was paid. Well, I'll just continue on with that. You can see just the past week, I got paid on the 16th, one, two, three, four different dividends. That was about $30.33. It bought some LTC and store capital with the fractional shares. On the 17th, I got paid as well as the 19th, I got paid. And that equals about $6. So 
you can see these dividends coming in every couple of days. And it's not a ton of money. It's, you know, it's equating to $15 here, $30 here. We're still only two thirds into this month. It's only the 20th. So the amount of dividends that I'm getting paid is around $200 a month, and that's going up all the time. In fact, I'll show you an example of the way that dividends increase that a lot of people aren't aware of. So you hear about dividend growth strategy, and a lot of people think that the word growth and dividend growth means my portfolio value is growing because I'm being paid dividends, right? They think, oh, dividend growth investing means that you're investing in companies that pay dividends and your account grows because they're paying dividends. That's not what the name implies. The name means in growth that the amount that you're getting paid per share from dividend companies is increasing. This is one of the pillars of how a dividend growth strategy increases. So for instance, let's say that you own 20 shares of Amgen and you've owned it for a year. Well, what Amgen announced is that they're increasing the amount per share they're paying in dividends. They increased it from $1.45 to $1.60. That's a 10.3% increase. So you owning those 10 shares, now the dividends that you're being paid for that same amount of shares, if you didn't buy any additional shares or reinvest just that same amount of 10 shares, you're making more per share. They're paying you a higher dividend amount per share. That is the dividend growth in the dividend growth investing. And you can see that happen just this month with Amgen. They increased their dividend payout by 10.3%. Broadcom here increased theirs by 22%. So they increased it from $2.65 a share to $3.25 a share. This is per year. And then Pfizer, another dividend payer, increased theirs by 5.6%. So all of these numbers are far past inflation. Increasing their dividends by 5%, 10%, 22%. This crushes inflation. And these companies do this year over year. They're constantly increasing the amount of money that they're paying you in dividends every single year, year over year. That's the whole point of growth and dividend growth investing is these increases right here, this 5%, this 22% increase, the amount of money they're paying you per share is increasing. That's the dividend growth. Okay, let's go ahead and get to some news here. The first thing is the House votes to impeach President Trump. This is the big news of the week. I don't have too much to say about this. I haven't talked about this issue at all. The reason why I haven't really brought this up as a subject on the channel is because this channel is about making money. That's the purpose of it. So the only things that I really talk about that are somewhat political in nature are things that move into the lens of where I think it would actually affect your ability to make money. There can be some things that are political in nature, but it's when a politician introduces something or does something that is heavily financially related. With President Trump being impeached, the question is, is do investors care about this? Is this something that will affect your investing? Obviously, the reaction that the markets had showed that investors do not care about this. The market, since impeachment, has only gone upwards. The reason why I think is pretty simple, the most important thing in investing, I've pointed this out, that I think the most important thing in investing is risk. Now, risk is another way of saying uncertainty. If there's something that is risky in nature, that means that it has a level of uncertainty to it, that you don't know the outcome. With this impeachment, everybody knows the outcome. This impeachment, voted on by the House, was voted almost entirely along party lines. It was the Democrats in the House voting to impeach and the Republicans voting against it. When it goes to the Senate to see if President Trump would be convicted, obviously he's not going to be convicted by the Senate. So there's no uncertainty here. The Senate is majority Republican already, and the Democrats would need a two-thirds majority vote to convict President Trump. So that's my quick thoughts on this. There's no element of risk involved in this. That's why I'm not surprised at all that the stock market doesn't seem to care about this. So as far as other thoughts, if you want analysis on 
whether this is a good move from the Democrats, how it will play out for them, if this will be something that sours President Trump's presidency and helps the Democrats or whether it will backfire, all that type of stuff. I'm not going to go into that. There's a lot of other YouTube channels that will give you analysis on the political aspects of this. As far as the investing aspect is concerned, I don't think this is something that will affect my investment decisions at all. Now, what I think is a much more relevant thing to investors, at least those that hold Boeing or are considering investing in Boeing, they released official statement that they're going to be suspending the 737 MAX production in January. So just in like a month, they're going to be stopping the progress of production of this plane. And that's not something like they can just flip a switch on and off. That is a, a lot of different companies, a lot of different workers that rely on constantly producing these planes. Just to give you a scale of what they're going to be halting the production of, it says the plane maker employs around 12,000 workers at its 737 assembly plant in Renton, Washington. I'm guessing that means the whole 737 line, so not uniquely the MAX. It says the production of the 737 MAX also supports thousands of jobs across a network of over 600 suppliers and hundreds of other smaller firms in the global MAX supply chain. Over 600 suppliers that they're going to say, hey, we, we don't need your supplies right now. So they're shutting down production. They're not giving us any indication of when they think production will continue. We just know that it's being shut down January. And in the meantime, they're burning about $1 billion a month. So that's quite a bit of money to be burning about a billion dollars a month. And then on top of that, to add a little bit of insult to injury, their Starliner space launch did not go well. So this is just one more thing not going Boeing's way. This isn't the biggest deal. It just didn't get to the right orbit. There's no lives in danger. There was nobody at risk, but it's just another thing that didn't go Boeing's way. Now, as far as the stock performance is concerned, it's been hovering around the same level. If you look at the actual five-year timeline, since about the beginning of 2018 is where the stock is at right now. So it's been sitting pretty flat for about two years now. The question is, is where's Boeing headed right now? I'm getting that a lot. The thing that concerns me about Boeing is, is what propelled their growth from 2016 and 2017 was the 737 MAX, that airliner. It was their best-selling one. It was more fuel efficient. It was able to compete with Airbus, and it's not going well. It's grounded. They're halting production. They don't know when it will be back in the air. So could this actually return back to where it was in 2017? Maybe, but it just depends on how long it takes for this plane to be approved and back up and flying. That's really what this comes down to. If they can get it approved, at least in the U.S., that would be a big step. But until that happens, you can expect this stock to at best stay flat. And if things continue to go wrong, if they can't get this plane approved and they can't continue manufacturing it, it could continue to trend lower. I own a little bit of Boeing. It's a small position in my portfolio. I don't plan on changing much with it. I'm just going to continue holding it unless they cut their dividend. That's really the decision maker for me. So if they cut their dividend, I'll sell it, take a loss, move it on to a different company that is in a better position. If they continue paying the dividend, then they're paying me to wait this out. So I'll wait it out as long as I'm being paid. Okay, let's get to some questions. Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com. Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com. Hi, Joseph. My name's Jonah. I'm 18 years young and always enjoy watching your videos. I've recently become interested in the economic research done by Eugene Fama and was curious to know what you thought about the efficient market hypothesis, which he is commonly associated with. Okay, Jonah, this is, uh, this is kind of a heavy question to start off with, but I'll try to go through the basics of it. So the efficient market hypothesis, it's research done, like you said, by Eugene Fama, I believe in the 1960s, he came out with a, a series of research. And there's a, a spectrum of how efficient people believe markets are. For the people that believe that it's the most strongly efficient, that's one end of the extreme on this. The efficient market hypothesis 
the basic fundamental assumption of it is that a security, so like a, a company, everybody has the same information about that company. It's all public. You know, the, the amount that they earn, the dividend that they pay, their year over year growth, all that information is public to everybody. And since everybody has equal access to all that information, everything about that company is already baked into the price. And therefore, there's no way to really consistently outperform the market. Because you don't have any extra information to work off that nobody else has. So there's no way for you to really outperform it. So the theory suggests, at least for people that believe the most strong form of the efficient market hypothesis, they will invest in ETFs, just a broad market. There's no reason to own individual securities because you can't consistently outperform the market. And if you come to them and you say, hey, you know, I, I've made more money. I've done better than the market for this time period. They'll say that's not a long enough time period. It needs to be for 20 years. So there's really no way to ever prove them wrong. And if you show that you have lower beta or you've been outperforming the market, they'll say, well, you either got lucky or you took on additional risk. That's the response is that anybody that really outperforms the market, according to people that believe in the efficient market hypothesis, they simply took on additional risk. That's the thing that they believe. Now, there's a couple of things right off the bat that I think are wrong with the basic assumptions of the efficient market hypothesis, the strongest form of it. One of them is that same basic assumption that because all the information is out there for every company, that everybody's going to treat that information the same. Some people might get news about a company and its expansion plans and what it's doing, and they, they come to completely different conclusions based off the same exact information. So just that everybody has the same information does not mean they're going to value the company same. They're going to support the same track the company's on. Two people can look at the exact same information and they will come to completely different conclusions on it. So that's something that I see that is fundamentally wrong with the efficient market hypothesis is people make different decisions based on the same information. Another issue is, is that assuming because all the information is out there that everybody A, even looks at it and B, even understands it. How many people actually understand what yield on cost is? How many people actually even understand how a dividend works? A lot of people think it's a variable rate, a percentage of the stock. And if the stock goes up, the dividend goes up. They don't know that it's a set amount per share. Most people do not understand the absolute basics of how to evaluate a company. So saying, hey, everybody has the information, so everything's baked in the cake. Okay, everybody has the information, but it may as well be written in a foreign language for most people. Most investors only look at a few pieces of information, they make highly irrational decisions based off that information. So claiming that it's efficient, that everybody's looking at all the information that's all available, I think is another fundamental flaw of it. Another problem for people that believe in the strongest form of market efficiency is that you can point to striking examples showing that for that person, this theory did not hold up. You can look at people like Warren Buffett, that it wasn't just taking on additional risk that he had alpha. He had lower beta. His decisions were not extra risk. They were just more knowledgeable and informed and sensible decisions. I don't think that Berkshire took on any more risk than the rest of the market. In fact, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett would say quite the opposite. They would say that their companies and the ones that they held were far less risky than the general market. So you can point to people like them that have consistently over decades of time outperformed the general market. According to the strongest form of market efficiency, that shouldn't be possible. So the people that try to defend the strongest form of market efficiency, they have to create extra hurdles to jump over and extra explanations to try to explain these people away. And a lot of it, I think, is just grasping at straws. They, they have to go to really extreme ends to try to explain away people like Warren Buffett. 
Now, like I said, with the efficient market hypothesis, it is a spectrum. There's people that are on that most extreme end where it's a strong market efficiency. I don't agree with that version of it. But there is another weak market efficiency that I agree with. That is where you believe that, yes, most of the information is out there. Most of the time, prices will eventually get to where they're supposed to be with companies. To me, it works a lot like the laws of supply and demand. You look at the businesses around you in general economics, and the economy works off the laws of supply and demand. The higher demand, the less the supply, the price goes up. The lower the demand or the more the supply, the price goes down. That's generally how our economy works. But I still believe in supply and demand and believe that when I go out and I go and shop and do commerce, I'm still looking for good deals as I go throughout my day. I'm not just going to say, well, the laws of supply and demand will make it so that everything out in the world is accurately priced to the value that it provides based off of that economic law. You know, I think that I can agree that most things are eventually shaped around the laws of supply and demand in our economy, but I can still look at good deals. That's the way that I look at the markets. I think that there is a level of efficiency there. Most things will generally, most things will generally get to the price that they're supposed to be, but I'm still going to look at good deals in the meantime. I think there's opportunity out there to get better deals if you're actually paying attention to the price of things. Anderson says, hey, I like your content and I appreciate it very much. While reading one of Tony Robbins books, I've been researching about Ray Dalio's all weather portfolio and would like to know, would you ever consider adding commodities like gold to your portfolio? Thanks. All right, Anderson, I actually think that I've read that same book before. So I had a friend that had a Tony Robbins book and I borrowed it for a weekend. And I remember him talking about the all weather portfolio, the portfolio that goes through any economic environment and does pretty well. And he interviewed, Tony Robbins interviewed Ray Dalio and he got that portfolio constructed from him. So uh, the portfolio itself, I think is really solid. And the question, will I add commodities like gold to my portfolio? This goes back to actually another point, like in the previous question, I was talking about the efficient market hypothesis. You know, another thing that it leaves out is preference. If you have a preference for one thing over another, I think it's reasonable for people to have preferences of what they're buying. I have a specific strategy that I'm following. Part of a strategy is a preference. I'm saying that I have thought about all the things that I can buy and have a preference for buying these things. And even if it does have the same total return estimated over 20 years as something else, I still like having a preference over it. It's similar to how my my dad owned uh, apartments. He owned rental apartments. That was his preference. That's the type of work he did. If I would have told him that a, a different type of investment had the same expected return over a 20-year period, he'd go, okay, that's great, but I want to own these rental apartments. That's what I'm saying is there's... I don't think there's anything wrong with having a preference of the type of things that you want to own. I've outlined in my strategy that I want to own things that pay me cash residually, things that put money back into my pocket. So part of that is owning bonds that pay me out monthly. Part of that is owning dividend companies that pay me out quarterly or monthly. Every single holding I have, every single thing that I buy and I put money in residually pays me money in the background. The issue with gold is even though it's a solid hedge, it has all the benefits, you know, it's a solid product that I don't think will ever go out of style and keeps its value, especially during recession, is it doesn't follow that same basic thing where it puts money back in my pocket. The price of gold is dictated by what other people will pay for it and only what other people will pay for it. That's an aspect I don't like about gold. I don't like having the thing that I'm buying, the only value of it is based off of what other people will pay for it. With dividend-paying stocks, even if hypothetically somehow nobody would pay anything for them, if everybody else said, this company is worthless, I don't want any ownership in it, right? And the company goes down to about zero. 
but they're still dispersing money to their shareholders, it still has value there. It's like if you own a farm and it produces a yield every single year, it doesn't matter what other people are willing to pay for that farm. You're still getting the yield. You're still getting the harvest of it every single year, despite what other people will pay for it. So gold and other commodities, they sit there. They're totally dependent on what other people will pay for it. I know that in times of recession, that number will go up. And then in bull markets, it tends to go down a little bit. I just don't like the idea of it just sitting there and not paying me money. I want everything I buy to pay me money. That's my preference. That's my strategy that I'm following right now. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and end this video there. I'll wish you all Merry Christmas. I'm not sure if I'm going to have a video out before Christmas. It just feels weird to me to have a financially related video, right, when we're supposed to be charitable and giving and not worry about making money and having finances. So I don't know. I might release one after Christmas. We'll see. But if you guys want to talk to me directly, you can join the Patreon. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next time.